0: February 28th, pediatric grand rounds, as well as our annual Colin C. Stewart III visiting professorship, um, which we will be introducing by Dr. Tansky shortly. Um, our our visiting professor also will be joining us at the 28th Dartmouth Pediatric Conference at Mount Washington Resort, Bretton Woods, Thursday through well, Thursday through Friday in his case, but the conference is Thursday through Sunday. There is still space and walk-in registrations are welcome. But given the festivities and the introductions, I'm going to allow our chief of general pediatrics, uh, Dr. Suzanne Tansky, to take the podium and uh, introduce us to the Stuart Lectureship.
1: Thank you. So welcome again to the 2018 Stuart Lectureship. This is a lectureship that was Founded in 1971 and went for a while and then resumed in 1983. So we're in the 30 years, 35 years or so of annual lectureship. So this is a pretty sustained thing. So just to tell you a little bit about Dr. Colin C. Stewart, he's the second important Colin C. Stewart because prior to him, we had a doctor of philosophy at Dartmouth College. But this Dr. Stewart we're here to celebrate was a beloved pediatrician, a general pediatrician. and a professor of pediatrics who got his undergrad degree at Dartmouth, magna cum laude in 1923. He attended Dartmouth Medical School and got his MD from the University of Pennsylvania in 1926, pediatric training in Philadelphia and in Mayo in Minnesota, and came back to Hanover in 1931. He was the very first pediatrician in the newly formed Hitchcock Clinic, so he truly is one of our founding fathers, and he was faculty of the medical school. Along with his official capacities in many official, uh, many organizations like the AAP, the American Board of Pediatrics, New Hampshire Children's Aid, he was the first pediatrician for the Hanover Grade School and the Hanover High School. He raised six kids here, including three sons who all attended Dartmouth. The Hanover Gazette in an editorial called him one of the t- town's most loved and valued citizens, a man who never put his own convenience above the call for a doctor's help. He died, unfortunately, in 1962 at the very young age of 59. In one of his obituaries, his deep and abiding love of children was noted. He never merely treated a case, but always felt a genuine compassion for any sick child and never spared himself in doing everything in his power to bring back life and health. I'm going to acknowledge the stewards who have been attending these lectures for many, many years. Uh, We have Jake. Dartmouth class of 1955 who is one of Dr. Stewart's children, his wife lovely wife Priscilla, his his daughter Karen, his we have a grandson-in-law Tom and we have a another granddaughter Laura who is Dartmouth class of 1983. I do believe they all bleed green. <laughs> <laughs> Their commitment to this lectureship has been very important, and we're very grateful for your attendance year after year. So without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Steve Chapman, who's going to introduce our fantastic general pediatrician, Dr. Dreyer. Uh, we have a history of bringing general pediatricians for this because general pediatricians do change the world. <laughs>
2: So I'm thrilled to be able to introduce um, someone I've been trying to get up here for a while, um, a colleague and someone who's always made me um, glad that I'm a pediatrician. So Dr. Bernard Dreyer is a general and developmental behavioral pediatrician who has spent his professional lifetime serving poor children and families. Professor of Pediatrics at NYU, he leads the Division of Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics, is Director of Pediatrics at Bellevue Hospital, and also still works as a hospitalist. He was AAP president in 2016 and is currently serving as the AAP's medical director for policies. For over 30 years, Dr. Dreyer has led a primary care program at Bellevue, including co-located mental and oral health services and clinics and homeless shelters. His research is focused on interventions in primary care to improve childhood outcomes, including early brain development and obesity with well over 100 publications to his name. He has taken a leadership role in developing and shaping the AAP's strategic priority on poverty and child health. Dr. Dreyer was president of the Academic Pediatric Association and founded and chairs the APA Task Force on Childhood Poverty and the APA Research Scholarship Program. He also hosts a weekly radio show on Call for Kids. Please (laughs) join me in welcoming Dr. Bernard.
3: It was on all along. It's a good thing I wasn't talking. (laughs) You know the old joke that, you know, after grand Rounds, the speaker goes to the bathroom and then everybody hears him. (laughs) Um, I'll try not to do that. I try not to embarrass anybody. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, uh, And, uh, you know, what a wonderful tradition this is. I'm really proud to be one of the people uh, asked to be a Stuart visiting professor. Can people hear me in the back? Yes? Uh, Because I'm told they could make it louder, since I'm uh, somewhat, I don't know where the guy went, however. (laughs) Whatever, I'll try to speak up. Okay. Um, I have uh, no relevant disclosures. I have some learning objectives, I'll just briefly tell you about them. Uh, At the end of the presentation, the audience should be able to describe the levels of poverty for children in the U.S., including differences among uh, racial-ethnic groups, explain the effects of poverty on child health, uh, explain how toxic stress affects brain development and child behavior, apply interventions in communities and in pediatric practice that improve child development, health, and well-being. Number five, we probably won't get to, but I'm always optimistic Uh, So if we get there, I I would love to spend a little time talking about the threats to children's health insurance um, that occurred in last year and are continuing in this year. So poverty. Um, uh, uh, Children uh, are in green at the top. Uh, Children are the poorest group in our society as uh, compared to uh, older adults. Uh, You can see that who have about half the level of poverty of children. Of course, there are racial ethnic differences. You can see that um, Latino and uh, black children are much more likely to be poor than white children, although in a place like New Hampshire, there are plenty of poor white children. Just to look at that, uh, so this is looking at... uh, all the poor children in the United States, and what percentage are each uh, ethnic group. So you can see that white children, who are 52% of U.S. children, account for about a third of all the poor children uh, in the United States. Um, At the other extreme, American Indian and Alaska Native children are only 1% of the children in the United States. So they only account for 1.6% of the poor children, but they have a very high poverty rate of 34%. And having uh, visited uh, uh, several of the uh, reservations this past year, uh, their poverty is very specific and very powerful. Urban versus rural. Much of your poverty is rural. You can see that uh, there are more... um, so on the left are the non-metro, which includes rural and small cities. And you can see that um, the the blue is low income. Uh, the white is, um, the yellow is, and the orange are the poverty, With with the deeper orange being deep poverty. You can see that at every age, there are more and more uh, significant poverty in rural areas than there are in metro areas. And you know this as well, the, the recovery has been very uneven, and you can see that the recovery in metro areas has been much more uh, uh, significant than in not metro areas. <clears throat> so I did say that um, older adults were less poor than kids, but it was not always this way. So in 1959, the, the blue bars are older adults, <clears throat> and the tan or orange bars are children. You can see that in 1959, older adults were the poorest group in our, uh, yeah, I think nothing's going to help me, actually. <clears throat> I have uh, damaged vocal cords, and I've been screaming at people all morning, so. uh, as long as you can hear me, I'm okay about it. Uh, so you can see in 1959, uh, the older adults uh, were the poorest group in our society. Not that kids were not very poor, but then came uh, Medicare and expansions of Social Security and uh, older adult poverty dropped to 25% in 69, uh, 15% in 79, and down to 9% uh, in modern days. Um, you know, children's poverty started high as well and also dropped in the 60s. Actually, uh, that was the lowest level of child poverty ever. So one thing to remember, one of the myths is that the uh, war on poverty didn't work. Well, actually, it did work. It just wasn't continued. And um, and th- that big drop for children was due to the war on poverty, due to Medicaid, due to a variety of programs that helped children and families. But uh, for children... Actually, the reverse has happened, and as you can see, their their poverty has increased over the years, 21% in 2015. It's now 18% because the economy is a bit better, uh, but basically up there and hasn't budged very much. I'd like to demystify what the poverty level is. So This is Molly Orshansky. She was in the Social Security Administration, and she uh, invented the poverty level. It was based on the economy food plan, which is the cheapest of all the uh, uh, Department of Agriculture food plans, Uh, and uh, at that point it was felt that families spent about a third of their budget on food, and so that number was multiplied by three and has remained the basis of the uh, federal poverty level ever since, uh, adjusted for family size and for inflation. In 2017, uh, it was 24,600 for a family of two adults and two children. But uh, this uh, graph from California, but it could be from Boston or uh, probably even close, even uh, New Hampshire, you can see that family needs budgets, meaning the minimum amount a family needs to just get the bare necessities for their family um, is very different from that. And you can see that um, uh, for a family of two adults and two young children, the number there is is about $68,000 in California. Probably a bit lower in New Hampshire, but not overwhelmingly lower. And that's because food only is 14% of their budget. I don't know if this works, yeah, 14%. Uh, and there's a huge uh, increase in housing, and, of course, for young children, child care if parents are going to work. So that, in general, we in pediatrics, when we're thinking of family poverty, we actually think that 200% of the, of the poverty level is a closer approximation to what families need to just eke by, and that's not having money to go to a movie or to go to a restaurant.
0: Um,
3: And if you look at 200% of the the federal poverty level, 43% of the children in the United States, or almost one in two children, are living below 200% of the federal poverty level. One of the uh, messages that we in AAP have been putting out is that poverty is everywhere. So you can see that the blue line is suburban poverty, the black line is... uh, Uh, urban poverty and that actually now there are more poor families living in the suburbs than in cities. Uh, It's the fastest growing area for poverty. And that's because more jobs are there. Uh, There are some good things about suburbia for poor families. Uh, But as you know, living in a more rural area, the bad thing is no public transportation and uh, dependence on a car, which you may not be able to afford to have. This is another poverty is everywhere slide. This was a survey done of pediatricians in practice by the AAP, and uh, and the question was uh, how many of your families are living in poverty or in financial distress? And for all pediatricians, you can see the number is about 46% of their families, certainly higher in urban inner city and rural areas. So poverty is really everywhere, even in suburbia, almost 30% of the families were living in poverty. That 46% is perilously close to that 43% of kids living under the, uh, 200% of the federal poverty level. How do we compare to other developed countries? So this is uh, child poverty levels from the OECD countries, that's the Organization of Economic Cooperation Development, and that's basically... The developed or the high-resource countries, you can see on average. Uh, uh, so the blue bars are child poverty. Those uh, black um, diamonds uh, are overall poverty in that country. You can see that overall, about 12 and a half percent of kids are poor. Uh, we're up here, uh, and most of Europe is down there, below 10 percent. Um, And you can see that in addition to being below 10%, those little black diamonds are floating above child poverty. So as opposed to the United States, where child poverty is much higher than adult poverty, in those countries, child poverty is much lower, pretty much, than adult poverty. And that's not an accident. That has to do with policies that protect uh, families with children and support them. I always tell a story, I was, I was uh, talking earlier, my, um, my son lives in Germany with his wife and now three-year-old child, and when my daughter-in-law gave birth to my granddaughter, uh, uh, she got a year of paid maternity leave. And that's, everybody in Germany gets a year of paid maternity leave. Uh, so this looks at public spending on children and families. And uh, the y-axis is in kind, Public spending, now in kind, might be food stamps. Um, cash benefits on the bottom might be uh, TANF or welfare. You can see that the United States is in the corner of shame, so it's really low on both accounts. You really want to be where Sweden and Norway are, or at least where United Kingdom and Ireland uh, are. Uh, you notice that Canada is not very good either, but uh, this, is, uh, this was put together in, um, before Canada started a child benefit. So right now, I think uh, uh, Canada's gonna be really moving away, uh, uh, I guess, to the, to the right on this, um, because they're gonna be pouring a lot more cash benefits into families. The consequences of poverty on child health <coughs> They're well-known to everybody in this room, but I'll just briefly mention them. (coughs) Increased infant mortality, low birth weight, and subsequent health and development problems. Increased severity and frequency of chronic diseases. More food insecurity, poor nutrition and growth. Poor access to quality health care and healthy food, although um, this has been dramatically improved. I'll get there at the end of the talk uh, due to child health. Uh, CHIP, Child Health Plus, as well as expansion of Medicaid. Um, Increased accidental injury and mortality. In fact, pretty much the entire increased mortality in poor kids above a year of age has to do with increased accidental injury. Um, Increased obesity and its complications. Um, Increased exposure to toxins such as lead. Think of Flint, Michigan and pollutants, uh, maybe not in rural areas, but certainly in, in urban areas, poor families usually live in high, more highly polluted areas uh, because that's where nobody else wants to live. Air, I mean, air pollution, water pollution, uh, including New York. However, the consequences of poverty on uh, child well-being are probably in, even more consequential More toxic stress impacting early brain and child development. poorer educational outcomes. Less positive social emotional development and this leads to what we call trajectory altering events. um, Early unprotected sex with increased teen pregnancy, drug and alcohol use, increased criminal behavior as adolescents and adults. They're more likely to be poor adults and all of this is especially true if they grow up in deep poverty long-term poverty, or poverty in early childhood. This is just one graph, so just to me orient you, the yellow are, people, are kids who experience poverty in early childhood, and the white are those that don't, and it compares their adult learning, earnings, as you can see, more than twice as much, uh, dependence upon uh, government programs like food stamps, in poor health, as adults, and uh, for women, non-marital births. So uh, just one example of how experiencing uh, poverty, especially in early childhood, uh, has long-term significant effects. I'm just going to say one thing now, and I won't repeat it again. Remember, these are all averages. It doesn't mean that every child who grows up in poverty is doomed for life. Uh, Many aren't. But on the average, as you can see, um, uh, there are very significant impacts. Why uh, early experiences matter so much? Well, this is the newborn brain, and uh, this is the two-year-old brain. It's about three times as heavy. It's more than three times the size. And uh, just one uh, point about this: it doesn't grow that much more after two years of age. And uh, that's why some of our leaders may act like toddlers. <laughs> Um, This is another sort of uh, graphic look at what's going on from the newborn to two years of age. Think of all of that. 700 new synapses are created each second in the early years. And if you watch a a young child growing and doing things, you can almost see those synapses being (laughs) created as you're sitting with them. And, of course, it's not just extra synapses. It's pruning of unneeded synapses and strengthening of the connections that really matter. Uh, th- uh, there's more and more literature, and I'm not going to review the literature in detail today, about looking at the impact of poverty on brain structure uh, in, in children and the association of child poverty with both um, changes in brain structure and, uh, of course, uh, academic achievement. These are two recent articles. There, there are a number of them. This is just uh, a, one of those two looks at uh, the brain areas that, that you find differences in surface area, especially in the temporal frontal lobes and prefrontal cortex. If you think about that, temporal lobe is for language, and uh, frontal lobe is for uh, executive functioning, and especially the prefrontal cortex. Um, And toxic stress, the lack of resources in learning, parenting stress leading to generally less effective parenting, all are implicated in the differences in brain structure that are seen. This is another look at at that. This is looking at volume uh, associated with uh, disruptive behavior problem. And you can see that um, literally the volume of brains in poor kids uh, in, uh, in low SES, at the bottom, uh, in many key areas. This is total gray matter, one example, are, are lower. A few words about ACEs, since we talk about ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences uh, leading to toxic stress. So I, you probably can't read all of these, but basically um, the classic ACEs are divorce or death of a parent, parent in jail, um, adult uh, domestic violence, um, victim of neighborhood violence, uh, living with somebody who's mentally ill, and uh, li- living with somebody on alcohol or drugs, etc. So those are all the colored ones. But the biggest toxic stress is poverty itself, and that's in blue on the side. If you look at the relationship of poverty to uh, children experiencing two or more ACEs, you can see that uh, almost 35% of kids living below the poverty level um, uh, have two or more ACEs. And as you can see, as you go up the income ladder, there's really a direct correlation with fewer and fewer uh, children experiencing ACEs. Not a surprise, but actually, It's important to remember that ACEs can occur to anybody, to any child, but children who are living in poverty and near poverty are much more at risk for adverse childhood experiences. And how 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 do adverse childhood experiences get into under the skin of poor kids or any kid that's experiencing? And there's some good evidence that actually among the ways they do this is through epigenetic changes. So this is a cartoon of DNA. It's tightly packed around histones. And in order for it to produce a proteins, it has to get unpacked. And uh, the way that happens, I'm, again, I'm going to just, this is not going to be a whole lecture on this, but gene methylation will turn genes on and off. So you can see that this is an unmethylated DNA um, and it, transcription is hard because the, basically unmethylated, it's it's blocked. But when you, um, I mean, it's unblocked. So when it's unmethylated, you can see that the sites are open for transcription. But um, when those sites are methylated, they're closed off from transcription, and therefore proteins cannot be made. And so uh, there's good evidence that methylation and also... Uh, histone um, acetylation are mechanisms to epi- cause epigenetic changes in DNA which often uh, last for generations. I'm gonna say. Uh, this is um, a very uh, famous experiment of uh, mother rats and baby rats. They kind of look cuter than you think rats, don't judge- you <laughs> think? It's kind of <laughs> sweet. Uh, so... Um, Briefly tell you about this experiment. They, uh, they took pups and they uh, gave them to foster parents, to foster mothers, so that there was no genetic connection between the pup and the mother. They gave some of the pups to mothers that were uh, very nurturing for a rat that's licking them a lot, and then they gave some of the pups to mothers that were not very nurturing, meaning... They were not into licking their pups. And what they found was uh, um, uh, that um, those mothers that were high licking (coughs) and grooming actually produced epigenetic changes in their brain uh, that regulated the glucocorticoid receptor, GR. And I'm not even going to read the cascades and the genes expressions that Caused that, but basically it was through methylation of gene, demethylation of genes so that they could make proteins. And that led to enhanced expression of of GR and enhanced negative feedback sensitivity to glucocorticoids, therefore producing less cortisol and uh, calmer infants that were, uh, the pups were much more calmer, they didn't run around aimlessly, they could do their little Um, uh, tasks very nicely, and in fact these epigenetic changes in the rats were carried on to future generations. So there's more and more scientific evidence that um, stress and lack of nurturing really do cause very significant long-term sometimes intergenerational um, uh, problems for children. All the more reason that we as a society have to focus on children, but especially early childhood, uh, to really make a difference for them if we're really gonna help kids. We know disparities begin very early. This is a famous study uh, by Hart and Risley that visited parents and uh, recorded all the language that was going on. Um, And this looks at the cumulative vocabulary that the child developed Uh, in basically poor working-class or upper-class families, you can see that just about 16 months when expressive language is emerging, they're already beginning to separate. And of course, by 36 months, there are huge differences in the cumulative vocabulary of the child. And that was matched with hearing many fewer words from their parents, Uh, and, and the quality of the language was very different rather than Um, positive reinforcement and uh, there was a lot of uh, commands and negative uh, language to the child. This looks at uh, the the parents uh, language uh, and the age of the child and again you can see the same kind of difference and if you've heard the, uh, the term 30 million word gap, it comes from this study because by four years of age Kids in professional families heard uh, 30 million more words than kids in poor families. In fact, there's an organization called, you know, Cut the Gap or Save, uh, you know. So, this is another famous study looking at, uh, like, what can you do about this? So, there are some uh, important experiments looking at um, uh, uh, enhanced preschools. Uh, and this is looking at the um, uh, the Perry uh, preschool project, which started in the 1960s. Uh, this is actually looking at another project. This is looking at mask, math levels. I'll get to the Perry in a minute. So you can see that uh, at six years of age, kids in high income are in green, and kids in low income are in the bottom in red and that at six, at the time school begins, kids are already significantly uh, different from each other. So you can see that at six years of age, there's a big difference between kids at higher and lower income levels. Uh, and um, by 12 years of age, um, you know these uh, differences increase, in fact. So that's the lowest income level, that's the highest income level. Um, and by, by age eight, those differences are pretty much fixed. Uh, and there's not much chance, really, if you're already behind in reading or math in the third grade to be able to catch up after that. This looks at reading, that was math. Again, the same s- story, at about six years of age, at school entry, This is uh, high parental education versus low parental education. Uh, And it starts at six and it goes to high parental education at 14 compared to uh, low parental education. Again, you see, not only do they start different, but they actually get worse over time. Uh, So uh, what is the lesson from these two graphs? Lesson is you need to start before school. School is really too late to really make that much of a difference. That doesn't mean school is not important. But uh, if, if we could catch kids up so they start on an even play, play, uh, playing field at the beginning of school, then I think we have to focus on what, what the school needs to do to keep that going. Right now, the schools are already given a kid that it's often so significantly behind that it's really hard to figure out how to help her or him. So, um, I, when I talk about poverty, I, I sort of say, when we, when we think about poverty, it's a little like the blindfolded man feeling the elephant. He feels the ear and says it's a fan. He feels the a body and says it's a wall. He feels the tail and says it's a rope. He feels the leg and says it's a tree. He feels the trunk and says it's a snake and he feels the tusk and says it's a spear. And when we talk about poverty, we say, uh, we talk about children's problems, we say it's health equity, it's early brain and child development, it's foster care and the problems of kids in foster care, it's the mental health problems that kids have, it's obesity, it's epigenetics, it's food insecurity, it's the problems of immigrant children, it's toxic stress, it's poor oral health, it's low immunization rates, it's ACEs, it's increased chronic diseases, it's family homelessness, it's lead poisoning, but it's poverty, it's really all about poverty. This is the AAP uh, poverty uh, uh, webpage. I I recommend uh, uh, among the pages that you can go to, There are a lot of resources here. Our policies on child poverty are over there and you can download them and read them. Uh, There's also a special supplement in academic pediatrics which has amazing resources and information on child poverty. And then there are practice tips and tools uh, that you can download for free. This doesn't solve child poverty but gives you a lot of information and tools that will help you if you really want to help families. When we, uh, at the AP, um, uh, uh, planned uh, our child poverty efforts, I guess I should say our anti-child poverty efforts, um, we wanted to know. We wanted to design some key messages, um, and these are the three key messages that uh, we designed. One is that poverty is damaging to children's health. I think I've, uh, I think you knew that. I think I've reviewed that for you. Poverty happens everywhere. This is not just a pocket of poor children. And fortunately, we have realistic solutions that we know will work. And I think that's a key point. Federal policies do work. Without them, one in three children would be poor, rather than one in five. And there are many other policies and programs that may not decrease the poverty level but cushion poverty for the child and ameliorate the impact of poverty. Something called the supplemental poverty measure which has been developed. So uh, among the many problems that the regular poverty measure uh, has is that you don't get credit for getting money from the government. In other words, if somebody actually has a lower poverty level because they're getting food stamps. You can't see that. And so the supplemental poverty measure does a bunch of things, but one thing it does is it gives each family the worth of the government programs that they're getting and then looks at where their poverty level really is. Uh, Using these measures in total, this is from 2013, uh, the, uh, this got reduced uh, from 21% to 16.5%. So you can see that uh, government programs overall uh, were reducing child poverty. But I think the individual uh, programs are even more il- illustrative. So you can see that overall government programs decreased child poverty by 13%. And you can see that uh, earned income tax credit, 6.4%. Food stamps, 2.9%. Housing subsidies, 1.4%, et cetera. Um, If you add Medicaid and or /or CHIP to that, it's probably uh, another 1%. Actually, it's probably much more than 1%. It's hard to uh, value Medicaid, but in fact, at the moment, I'm actually working with a group of people to try to value how much Medicaid actually decreases poverty, and it's probably close to another 5%. Uh, so, government programs work. Um, uh, the, the problem is that uh, we need to do a lot more. We need to expand those programs. Uh, and uh, think about doing what other countries do, like Canada is now uh, has a, a almost universal child benefit, which is really, I think, really going to decrease their child poverty rate. This is uh, the High School Perry Preschool Project that I... Uh, said before, Uh, so in addition to cutting poverty, the other thing we need to do is help poor families and help (coughs) poor children to ameliorate their problems, and this looks at a uh, enriched preschool, and these are the findings at 40, and that's when the kids are aged 40 years. This is the start of the 1960s. You can see higher IQ at five, higher basic achievement at 14, higher graduation rates from high school, higher earned income at 40, and fewer arrests or criminal behavior at 40. Um, It's estimated that there's a seven to 10% per year rate of return, which is higher than the stock market um, before the 2008 meltdown. Uh, So these programs in the long run not only pay for themselves, but actually uh, add to our GDP. The problem is that in the short run, you can't see those benefits because you have to wait until the kid grows up and is now earning more money and more productive in society. And the OMB doesn't even go more than 10 years uh, into the future. So it's very hard, and, and we know that congressmen get elected every couple of years so they're not even interested in ten years they're interested in a year and so there has been very little support for the kinds of programs that would make long-range improvements in children's lives and actually add to our economy this is um, Head Start and Early Head Start so Head Start is like the largest program For uh, preschool for poor children, you can see that, however, even for Head Start, I don't know if you can read that, only 34 percent, about a third of the kids who would benefit from Head Start actually have places in Head Start. If you look at Early Head Start, which starts at birth, uh, only 4 percent of kids who would benefit from Early Head Start have places in Head Start. Likewise, home visiting, I know you have a home visiting program here that I think I'm going to be seeing a little later today. Uh, There's good evidence that home visiting improves language development, improves school performance, and actually, again, saves money in the long run. But, again, the home visiting programs reach only about 2.5% of poor children under three years of age. So another message, I guess, is we do have programs that work, but we would need to expand them very significantly if we were going to really help children on a large basis. Are there interventions in primary care? Well, pretty much everybody knows about Reach Out and Read in pediatric primary care. I presume you have a vibrant Reach Out and Read program here, as all of us do There's been good research on Reach Out and Read. This is actually one paper that we did at Columbia, at at, uh, NYU and Mount Sinai together, and basically showed that um, children's receptive and expressive language, if they are exposed to Reach Out and Read, is advanced compared to those who are not. Um, uh, Another program that we have been working on, Video Interaction Project, Again, uh, in pediatric primary care, increased parent child interactions, improved child cognitive language and social emotional development, reduced delays we 're actually uh, starting this uh, we 've been invited to Flint, Michigan uh, to start a reach out a video interaction project there, and actually it started in january so there are programs that we can do in um, Pediatric Primary Care. Healthy Steps is another program that's pretty widespread that that has various components that really help families. So what are the recommendations of the AAP to pediatricians as to what we can do, all of us, uh, to help families? Uh, Screen for risk factors within social determinants of health. You really don't screen for social determinants of health, although you we talk about it that way. You really screen for basic needs. And so, questions about basic needs such as food, housing, heat, childcare, making ends meet, and referral to community services. Um, implement integrated medical home programs such as Reach Out and Read, Healthy Steps, and then collaborate with community organizations. I know you are doing that here to help families address unmet needs and assist with stressors. Um, Uh, This is uh, suggested screening tools from the AAP site. These are all free, which is why they're up here. Um, Actually, on Thursday night, I'm going to talk a little more about screening for social needs and families uh, and our personal experience at NYU and at Bellevue and in New York City. Um, But these are some of the uh, surveys. There's the SWIC at the bottom, and then there is... um, we care, which was developed in Boston Medical Center, but there there are many uh, screens that you can use, and again, the point is not to screen the point is to develop connections with community services to get families the things that they need. It is estimated that about half the benefits that kids deserve, qualify for regarding food, housing um, etc are not. Uh, gotten by poor families. So just helping poor families get the benefits that they qualify for is a very useful and important thing to do. This is uh, just uh, an, uh, just to remind me that uh, New York City, the United Hospital Fund has put a learning collaborative together which I've chaired uh, of 11 um, health cent- health institutions to institute the screening for social determinants for social uh, needs and it's been going on for the last year There's going to be another year and um, we've learned a lot about how to do that it's not just the screening it's finding community partners connecting with community partners and sustaining those relationships getting the families to those community partners making sure that they actually get their needs met what about advocacy so You know, basic thing, as you've heard me say this before, we need to invest in young children. We need to uh, support and expand essential benefit programs. Um, We need to support and expand strategies that promote employment and increase parental income. That includes uh, expanding earned income tax credits and other things like that, minimum wage, paid parental leave, A word about earned income tax credits. Um, Earned income tax credits are very popular in the United States. There's a lot of bipartisan support for them because they uh, are for working families. You know, Um, but there are people in deep poverty who are are not going to be able to work for a variety of reasons, and those kids need support too. And earned income tax credit doesn't really help them very much. Um, so uh, other, um, other countries, as I said, Canada has a child benefit which is not dependent upon work um, which uh, helps those families and uh, we need to think about somewhat separately the very, those in very deep poverty for, for the, uh, and those in just regular poverty uh, as having some different uh, interventions that will help those kids. Improved communities, affordable housing. I know it's a problem up here in New York. Affordable housing is impossible. Um, you know, I, I was saying earlier that when I first started in getting involved in advocacy, I did so because in the mid-80s there was a epidemic of family homelessness in New York that hadn't existed before, uh, due to uh, bad housing policy, gentrification, and crack cocaine. At that point, there were 11,000 homeless children and five in 5,000 homeless families, and now there are 24,000 homeless children in 11,000 homeless families. So we haven't solved that problem. Housing has become more and more of a problem. Most of every mayor's plans to improve that housing are tiny increases in affordable housing that are not going to uh, meet the needs of a poor family who simply can't afford to live. They get evicted, or they get kicked out, or they just can't afford the rent. So that's a problem that um, we, we are very far away from solving. And homelessness, as you know, uh, is so damaging to children's lives, uh, to their ability to concentrate in school, to, to have a normal environment, the amount of stress that their families are under, uh, et cetera. So that's a big problem, which uh, we have not had any uh, desire, or any, um, I didn't say desire, but any ability to work on in a meaningful way. I I was at a meeting with HUD, Housing and Urban Development, uh, just a couple weeks ago. I represented the AP with, um, and... uh, I think HUD has, you know, is HUD does uh, provide some housing vouchers to people, so that's part of the way we support housing. Uh, ben Carson, who's the uh, now the head of HUD, who's one, one of the leaders of agencies in the government that doesn't actually believe in government. Uh, so his new plan is uh, to not put any money from the government into helping homeless families, but in fact to somehow get faith-based organizations and other voluntary organizations to do it all. Uh, Not going to happen. And, of course, support integrated models in the medical home. We would like Medicaid to pay for Reach Out and Read. In fact, uh, there's an experiment in New York State where we're getting Medicaid to, on a limited basis, pay for Reach Out and Read in, in upstate New York, because downstate New York we have a lot of resources, but upstate New York there are fewer resources. Increase ho- funding for home visiting, at least double it. Remember now, 2.5% of kids who need it get it up to 5%. When I was in Illinois giving a talk, the governor's wife uh, was very proud because she got uh, home visiting up to 10% of the kids. Uh, so, you know, that's four times the national average. Um, okay, I have a few minutes left. So I'm going to focus a little on health insurance, but I'll probably, uh, I don't want to actually take up some time to allow people to ask questions. So let me make one or two points and then stop. First of all, the good news is we are at historic lows on the number of kids who are not insured in this country. 5.3% at the bottom there. Um, uh, that is lower than ever, as you can see, than ever before.
2: Um,
3: and um, it, the progress has been amazing for poor children. When I, in in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, in, in, at Bellevue where I work, 40% of the kids were unabstured. And now their insured rates are pretty much the same as all other kids. You know, we, we have really accomplished a lot, which makes me very anxious about going backwards. And as you know, uh, although we were very anxious that CHIP would be uh, reauthorized, in the end, it, it not only got reauthorized, it got reauthorized for a long time and at a, in a, in a very good rate. So that has, in spite of everything, that has been a victory this year. I'm just going to skip this. So, However, there are attacks on Medicaid. And so I, this is just to give you a sense of kids. Public coverage for children, 37 million kids are covered by Medicaid and about 9 million kids are covered by CHIP. This is not to put down CHIP as important, especially since they cover uh, a lot of kids above the poverty level who are still poor. Uh, and they also can cover, in certain states, immigrants. Um, But just look at that and think about attacks on Medicaid and what that could do to children's health care. So I'm not going to actually cover most of this now, because I I really would rather have people ask me questions, but I just want to focus on waivers. So as you know, last year there was an attempt to block grant Medicaid and cut it tremendously and block grant it. That would have ended it as an entitlement for kids and really would have destroyed Medicaid. We beat that off due to really strong advocacy from pediatricians, among others, but certainly from pediatricians, last year. I think there's going to be a renewed attack on Medicaid and cutting it this year. So I think we won a battle, but there's still other battles ahead. But in addition, um, the government um, is now uh, states are requesting waivers. In the past, those waivers were good experiments to make it better. And so certain compliance was waived and states were able to experiment with doing things that might have improved it. Most of the waivers now are either to waive the benefits, to set work requirements for adults, to require drug testing, uh, et cetera. These are now very negative waivers from the point of view of benefits for kids. And many, many states are uh, there. And unfortunately, HHS, which has to or CMS, I guess, which has to approve it, is likely to want to approve it uh, because they are really trying to attack Medicaid. So this is going to be, you're going to be hearing a lot more about fighting waivers. Uh, which we feel are going to be harmful to children. There are a lot of legal uh, uh, protections that should protect waivers from doing bad things, but uh, the way it works in in, in in the legal arena is that first they will do a bad thing, and then you have to sue them for uh, doing a bad thing and get it reversed. And so a lot of advocacy groups are uh, in the process of either Uh, taking a lot of these things to court, which are, in fact, illegal or against the regulations. Uh, And so this is going to be something that's going to be a moving target over the next year or two. I'm I'm not going to get into that anymore. Uh, So I'm going to just stop to say uh, my quote from one of my favorite people, that it's easier to build strong children than (laughs) to repair broken men, and uh, that's what we should be doing as a country.
0: Thank you. So, I'm going to start you off with the unanswerable. And, and the question is, is how? <clears throat> how fundamentally advocacy is about us convincing our fellow citizens to vote for policies that you identify. And how do we, how do we combat the myth of autocracy, which essentially holds that people are at a station in life. Do essentially to their own efforts, and so if you are in a state like ours, if you're happy, and if you're in a stage where they're in poverty, it's what they deserve. That's the narrative we have to battle. How? How do we win those advocacy battles?
3: So we haven't done very well at that, except um, I do think. Um, that we have to continue to put the policies out there that help children and fight for them. And thinking about CHIP and earning them tax credits, those are two powerful programs that we have actually won on. So, um, and why did we win on those? I think um, uh, uh, for earning them tax credits because they're working families. I'd be okay about it just helping working families, to be honest working, uh, helping them more, and I think that's one uh, uh, way of doing it. And I, I, think, um, I think getting um, author- other authorities to support us, so uh, I, I had a slide on this, but bizarrely or magically, in the end of 2015, Congress voted for the IOM, now called the National Academy of Medicine, it's changed its name, um, to do a study to show Congress how to cut child poverty in half in 10 years. And I'm actually, I'm on that study, and we're going to be publishing something later this year. And so, will that convince everybody? No. But if the IOM, or the National Academy of Medicine, says that this is something you could do, people will sit and sit up and look. So I think one strategy is to try to get the rest of the uh, community to really be there with us and uh, get them to speak out and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that because other IOM reports uh, you, know, you know have been very influential including medical errors uh, a variety of things where that didn't happen year one but it did happen year ten Uh, So that's another answer to that is that the tides, I I have, as a pediatrician, I have always been optimistic. And I remain optimistic uh, now. (laughs) Things will change. Um, uh, This is the United States. This is not Nazi Germany. This is not present-day Poland. Uh, This is the United States. Uh, We're we're not going to become an autocracy. And things, uh, you know, there will be changes. We just have to advocate for more, uh, in, you know, to really get the change happening.
0: Yes. I think it's going to jump, but Charlene is kind that's of forward with the Americans right. <laughs> Committee. So, last um, question,
1: Sholeen. So, take this with a grain of salt, because I did hear about this on a TED Talk. But um, there is a Dutch-born, now American, um, social scientist who... Says just what you say, that it's poverty. It's not all these different parts. And yeah. so a lot of the policies we have are attacking the different parts, but not attacking poverty. Yeah. And he advocates for just ensuring that every single household yeah. has a minimum living wage. And yeah. so you, don't, you erase all the other programs, put all your money in. Add, and in some of the experiments they did in certain towns, actually employment went up because they didn't yeah. have to look for a job that fed their family. They could right. look for whatever job was available, knowing that their income would be bolstered and everyone would have enough to eat. They would have enough to pay rent. They would have enough to pay for childcare because they
3: have the minimum living wage. Yeah. I and mean, everything So a, a variant on that, that is, by the way, the child benefit, which, which uh, Canada and Australia have. And that is um, <clears throat> looking at the needs of the child, not, not necessarily the needs of the family, but really often does the same thing. And in in the study that we're doing, we're looking at how we could design a child benefit, again folding in all those other things like earning income tax credit, other things, taking them away and replacing them with a real child benefit that actually lifted the the you know the family over poverty at a minimum level. Um, the problem with convincing, and so I think that's going to be a great exercise. I I don't have very high hopes of that happening in this country, and the reason is uh, we, um, we have separated out, I think as you said, the deserving from the undeserving poor, and work is very key, and you're right, actually giving people money may increase work, but um, unless you can really show how that happens, uh, there's a big concern about giving people money. That's why we did away with welfare, uh, because, uh, You know, people could get it without working. So I I think benefits that are not tied to work, or at least cash benefits, are are a difficult sell in this country. Although we are going to propose a child benefit um, that rolls in all these other benefits in some way.
1: So, doctor.